0: All right, so this is our last uh, week together for this class, so last opportunity to review the four G's, all right? G number one is? Glorify God. God. Thank you, Levi. (laughs) Levi to the rescue. Glorify God. Every conflict is an opportunity to glorify God, grow in Christ, and serve others, okay? So important that we think that way. Uh, and it's so difficult to think that way because in the, you know, in the eruption of a conflict, um, you know, we're, uh, we're focused on the lights and the sounds and you know, the, sh- the splinters that are coming at us. Uh, but we have to set our minds, oh, 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 this is a conflict. This is an opportunity for me to glorify God, grow in Christ, and serve others. Second G is... All right, get the log out of your eye, Matthew seven. You want to uh, self-examine uh, to see how have I contributed to this conflict? Uh, what are the desires in my heart that have risen to the level where I'm willing to fight uh, for uh, th- those desires? Um, how have I uh, spoken? How have I acted in ways that has contributed? not that I'm responsible for their sin, I'm not, but how have I contributed to making an environment where where we're now engaged in this conflict? Or if I haven't, if I can't think of anything, uh, even after maybe I've asked them and, and you know, humbled myself in that way, uh, I can still acknowledge that I'm a sinner in need of grace, just like them. And so uh, I can uh, just think to myself that I'm not better than this person. I am I'm a sinner just like them, and I want to come to them with humility when when I need to confront. So then the next G is uh, glorify God, get the log out of your eye. G number three, gently restore, gently restore. In gently restore. Galatians 6.1, you know, if anyone's caught in a trespass, if they're trapped in sin, you who are spiritual, restore one in a spirit of gentleness. So we want to, if someone is blinded to their own sin... Or they're not blinded, but they're just not able to get out of it. They're they're struggling. We want to come alongside them and help them uh, see and, and grow uh, so that their sin can be confessed and repented of. Uh, and then the last G is... Go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. And so that's just thinking about it. Okay, and now... That we have confessed sin, uh, what, what do we do in response? We forgive sin. And so that's where we talked about uh, the four promises of forgiveness, that uh, we are promising not to dwell on this incident. We're promising not to bring this up to you, to use it against you. We're promising not to bring this up to others. And we're promising to not allow this sin to hinder our relationship. Those are the four promises of forgiveness. And because there are promises, then we have to work on keeping those promises in the course of our relationship. Um, and so that's, that's vitally important. Last week we talked about uh, what does it look like to pursue an ongoing, if not a growing relationship with someone that we have reconciled with. Uh, and then today, we're going to talk about, uh, well, what about when the other person doesn't respond, when, when they don't receive your confrontation, when they're unwilling to acknowledge their sin, or they're unwilling to repent of it, uh, they're self-justifying, uh, they're feeling vindicated, you know, whatever it is, they are not wanting to reconcile. What do we do? What is our responsibility? Romans 12, 19 says, As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Which means that there are times when it doesn't depend on us, or at least it doesn't depend on, uh, it doesn't entirely depend on us. Uh, We can do what what God calls us to do, and there's no guarantee that that will bring reconciliation. So uh, here we want to talk about uh, when the other person doesn't respond, how should we move forward In our own minds and hearts, what should we be thinking? Uh, And then, how should we be thinking about the other person? And what can we do to move forward? So, you see that opening paragraph there. As we come to the conclusion of this course, we have to recognize that unity and peace is not always possible. We can do everything we are responsible to do, but we cannot control the other person's response. What do you do when it's clear that they're not interested in resolving the conflict in a way that's pleasing God? Well, here are five principles that we can uh, follow when reconciliation isn't possible. And I just want to reiterate what it says there. As we think about our response, what we're aiming at is glorifying God. Uh, we're not just thinking about that from the very at the very beginning, like, okay, I, I need to glorify God. But when we are getting the log out of our eye, we're thinking about how can I glorify God by taking responsibility for my contribution to the conflict. When we're gently restoring, we should be thinking about how can I glorify God in how I uh, talk to the other person, how I confront their sin, and how I uh, respond to their sin. Uh, and then as we are... Uh, going and be reconciled, we're thinking about how can I glorify God uh, in an ongoing way in this relationship. So the first way that you can glorify God when reconciliation isn't possible is keep your relationship with God <coughs> central. Keep your relationship with God central. Again, the, the difficulty about talking about conflicts is there's such a wide spectrum of the difficulty of conflicts. Right? You, you can have a very short and quick argument about uh, the oatmeal and how to, you know, how, what ingredients should be included in the oatmeal on a Sunday morning <laughs> before you go to church. Uh, th- and that conflict can, can be, uh, five minute long and it's, you know, it doesn't uh, blow up in any uh, significant way and you move on and, you know, you've all but forgotten it by the time you get to church. Uh, or there can be conflicts that are filled with vile speech and, um, Uh, condemnation and tearing each other down and even violence Uh, and then that has of course a deep and lasting impact on your lives and your relationships so there's just a massive spectrum of conflicts Uh, but uh, whether it's small or whether it's big we want to remember that the most important thing in our life is our relationship with God we cannot allow our conflicts to define us. You know, we understand uh, the, the phrase, man, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. <laughs> right? Someone's just uh, grumpy from the moment that they wake up. And uh, I don't know why we attribute that to getting up on the wrong side of the bed. <laughs> I don't know what, what matters uh, with that, how, how that came about. But, uh, but the reality is, it's all about our attitude, isn't it? I mean, just yesterday, one of our uh, uh, kids was not wanting to do their schoolwork. Uh, They had not done what they should have done earlier in the week, so they had a little extra to do yesterday, and so they were just sitting there with their math book in front of them, just pouting. And we're trying to tell them listen, this is all about your attitude. Like, you know how to do this, this isn't hard. You know, it's earlier math. Um, And if you would just change your attitude, you would, you still have to do it, but you'll get through it so much faster, right? And that is so true in many aspects of life that we allow our perception of a situation to just define us and control us and determine our outlook on the day. So we we have to avoid that. And as it says there, not allow our lives to be defined by anyone other than God, which can be hard when you're in conflict with someone that you know either you're interacting with on a regular basis, and so you're feeling the the pressure and the weight of that conflict, uh, or it's just someone that's so significant in your life that uh, it, it weighs heavily on you, and you carry that burden, uh, you know, all the time, no matter what else you're doing in your life. But as it says, your mood, your attitude. And outlook on life must reflect that God is your God, not the other person or the problem between you. All right, God is still sovereign. God is still in control. God is still good. God is still faithful. All of those things never change. And so no matter what is going on in your relationship with the other person, uh, God is still your God. And he is the one who gives you your meaning, your purpose, your dignity, your value, uh, your identity, and so you can be encouraged uh, in being steadfast in your relationship with God. So, how do you do that? Well, you maintain a dependent and growing walk with Christ by abiding in the Word, in prayer, and in fellowship with God's people. One of the things that significant conflicts can do is it kind of depresses, you can go into a mode of depression. And you withhold yourself from doing the things that would otherwise cultivate a walk with Christ. I don't really feel like reading the Bible. I don't really feel like being around other people, so I don't want to go to church. I don't feel like doing this. I don't feel like doing that. That's, in a sense, depression that is stopping you from uh, drawing closer to Christ. So you want to you know, not live based on your feelings. You want to live based on the truth of, of uh, who God is and what he's called you to do and take those steps of faith no matter how you feel. You know, how you feel is is not something that you can control. So it's not about, hey, snap out of it, you know, stop feeling depressed. That's not what what I'm uh, encouraging. What I'm encouraging is don't let how you feel control your response. Control your behavior. Uh, work through that by doing what you know is right, uh, by drawing closer to the Lord. While this issue or relationship may be important in your life, it is not the only aspect of your life that needs attention. So be intentional about growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ in ways that are not directly related to this issue. Again, sometimes when we get in conflicts, one of the things that we do is we uh, uh, just spend all of our time thinking about that particular conflict, and uh, along with that, we'll read books about conflict. We'll uh, read uh, articles about the nature of this conflict and the character of the other person. And we'll, we'll just be so focused on this one little area that everything that we do and think about and read and pray, the conversations we have with other people, it's all surrounding the the issues of this conflict. And, you know, there's, there's some uh, ways in which we need to make sure that we're growing in Christ in those things and maybe cultivating a biblical perspective, but we need to be careful that we don't make that our whole focus, right? Uh, You can read other portions of scripture that don't pertain to that. You can read other books, other articles. You can listen to other sermons Um, and just be encouraged by other truths. Uh, That's one of the things that is a blessing about being part of a church where where we have uh, various kinds of classes as well as expositional preaching where Uh, The goal is not, hey, I want to go to church to hear something that pertains to what I'm going through right now. That's how a lot of um, pastors think in terms of what they're going to teach. What are people going through right now? And so how can I help them through that? I'm not saying that's wrong or that's sinful. uh, But that's how a lot of people have been trained to then go to church, to look for that. Oh, they're talking about marriage. Well, I'm a single person, so I'm going to go somewhere else for a while until they're getting on subjects that I'm interested in. Uh, or they're talking about finances. Well, I'm, I'm doing finances, so I'm not really interested in hearing what they have to say. You know, there's just a mentality there. You know, it's wrong, obviously, uh, but there's a mentality there that we, we can sometimes get into. And and the benefit of of being focused just on the Word of God is... Uh, The word accomplishes God's purposes for which he sent it, right? Isaiah 55. And what that means is that you can be listening to a sermon that has, in its main theme, nothing to do with what's going on in your life. But there's some truth in that, in in the message, some statement even that's made, that the spirit ministers to your soul and encourages you. I I trust that's happened to many of you. That's why you love uh, the teaching of the word of God so much. Uh, so when, I, when I'm preaching, uh, I'm not just thinking, oh man, this only applies to people in this narrow band of, of this passage. I'm thinking about, uh, Lord, use this no, no matter what people are going through in their life, to bring encouragement and instruction uh, to them uh, where they're at. So all that to say, uh, be purposeful to expose yourself, whether through your own reading, whether through uh, listening to teaching or reading books or you know whatever it is, it be purposeful to expose yourself to things that will encourage your soul so that you're not so focused and defined by this conflict. Because again, you are more than this conflict. This conflict, whatever it is, no matter how significant it is, it's just one slice of your life. There's so much more to uh, to focus on. So you want to keep your relationship with God central. That's how you cultivate joy. That's how you can... Uh, say to someone, when they say, how was your week? Well, you might have had a couple really bad days because of that conflict. But you can say, you know what? It was a good week because, and you may not say it, but you might be thinking, five of the other days, <laughs> I was encouraged by you know other things. So um, keep your relationship with God central. The second thing is renew. The second principle to glorify God is renew... Uh, excuse me, review, renew, and redo your personal peacemaking efforts. In the interest of taking out the log, ensure that you actually have been faithful to what God has called you to do. When you confessed your contribution, was it done with humility? When you confronted them, was it done with gentleness? Don't allow pride to keep you from redoing what you feel like you've done. Wow. Uh, I understand that we often uh, think to ourselves I've done everything I can I've tried everything in fact on our uh, when somebody requests counseling from us we have a form that um, we haven't filled out it's called a PDI a personal data inventory form and one of the questions on there is you know what's the problem what is it that you're coming in to, to receive help for and then another question is what have you done about it and It's um, not uncommon uh, for someone to say. I mean, it's not common, but it's not uncommon for someone to say, "I've I've tried everything, (laughs) I've done everything." Or, or they'll say that to me when I'm meeting with them, and then as I'm talking to them, just to okay, well, help me understand, you know, specifically, I come to find out they actually haven't done anything at all, (laughs) or what they've done is fairly limited, and and that's fine uh, because then that's how I can you know come alongside and. And minister to them, uh, but uh, we have to humble ourselves to say, okay, even if I feel like I've done everything I've, I should have done, let me examine even those things and say, is there anything I, I could do more of? Is there anything that I could do differently? Can I try again? Um, is there anything else I need to confess? Uh, did I have uh, a, an attitude that was not helpful when I confronted their sin? Uh, Or did I not listen enough? Maybe I spoke too much and I didn't ask enough questions. Uh, We need to think about those things and evaluate our efforts. And so if you conclude that there's more sin you need to confess, or even if you sinned in the process, by omission or commission, confess that to the individual. So again, just review, renew, and redo your personal peacemaking efforts when we read in Matthew eighteen fifteen, 15, where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. And then the, the subsequent steps. I don't think he intends for us to only try once. Like, have one conversation confronting someone about their sin, and, oh, they didn't listen to that, so I'm going to now bring one or two others. Oh, they didn't listen to that one conversation, so now I'm going to tell it to the church. So you can have that process in a you know, two- to three-day period. <laughs> now I think that uh, implied in bringing in you know, the, the, the wisdom principles of relationship throughout Scripture is we want to try multiple times. We want to have multiple conversations. We want to uh, express our concerns uh, multiple times. We want to be gracious and patient. And so in the same way, uh, as we think our, about our peacemaking efforts, we shouldn't just think, well, I tried that. You know, I called them, and they didn't pick up the phone. <laughs> or I started the conversation, and they shut it down. Um, you can try again, uh, and, and uh, be sure that uh, your efforts have um, been exhausted. Uh, all right, the third principle, then, of glorifying God when the other person doesn't respond is to seek help. To seek help. Uh, we're not meant to go through the challenges of life alone, and so seek help from someone you are confident will be able to provide biblical counsel and help. So this isn't, you know, just talking to your best friend who's going to just, you know, commiserate with you and encourage you because they're not really thinking in an objective way. They're, they're not as concerned for your growth as much as they're uh, interested in just being an encourager to you, right? That's, that's what a in many ways, a good friend does, um, but a wise friend will challenge us. They'll speak truth to us. They'll ask questions. Well, are you sure that you were humble, <laughs> you know, when you did that? Uh, or are, are you sure that there's no way that you would have contributed to this? Are you sure that you understand their concerns well enough? And so, you want to talk to someone who's going to be able to help you think. Uh, from a a fresh angle, have a fresh perspective uh, so that you can uh, think about uh, the issue in in a more full uh, way. So ask uh, the individual that you're in conflict with. So you can do that on your own, by the way. Uh, It's not gossip. It's not gossip to seek help. Gossip, one way to define it, is gossip is talking to someone about a problem who has no ability to solve it it's one way to define it it's just spreading information to someone who can't participate in in the solution but if someone uh, is able to come alongside uh, and and they do that then then that's not gossip that's seeking counsel uh, you can also ask the individual you're in conflict with hey would you be willing to come with me to seek help from someone and see if they would be willing to to get help. And, and as much as we might think, ah, oh, they're not going to be open to that, <laughs> right? They've, they've resisted everything so far. Uh, they think I'm in the wrong, so of course they're not going to seek counseling or, or, or seek mediation. Well, that may be true. It also might be true that uh, they're thinking, yeah, let's go to counseling because somebody needs to tell you how wrong you are, <laughs> right? So, uh, and, and maybe that will happen as well. And so you can ask them, would they be willing to do that? And you want to find someone who um, would be an objective third party, you know, who's not going to be biased or favored toward you or the other person. Uh, and so, you want to think about that, so that uh, when you ask them, you know, you're you're not saying, uh, "Hey, let's go talk to my best friend," <laughs> so that we can get help. You know, talk talk to someone, uh, and even say that it's like I. I don't know who would be the best person, and I want you, you know, do you know of anyone who you think would be helpful? Um, Someone that they would find acceptable. All right, number four is frame and follow a practical, Christ-centered, ongoing plan to minister to the other person. So the fourth principle of how to glorify God when the other person doesn't respond to your peacemaking efforts is frame and follow a practical, Christ-centered, ongoing plan to minister to the other person. And you see three components there, and these come from scriptures that we've already looked at in the the class. (coughs) And that uh, we may look at, uh, well, sorry, no, I'm thinking of something else. Um, And these three principles are do good, bless, and pray. Do good, that comes out of Romans 12. Uh, Bless and do not curse. Uh, Do good to those who harm you. Uh, I'm mixing up passages in my mind. I don't know why I don't have them written in here. Uh, But do good is consider how you can do acts of kindness and goodness uh, to them or for them. Uh, Do they have practical needs? Is there something they would benefit from? Can you lessen their burden in some way? So as you think about the other person and the the situation of their life, the circumstances of their life, maybe the trials they've been going through or... Uh, things that are going on, how can you do kindness to them? How, how can you uh, meet needs? You know, Romans 12, uh, 21 uh, or 20, whichever it is, if your enemy hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Uh, how how can you be a blessing uh, to them in a very practical way? Uh, blessing them uh, Doing good is actions. Blessing here is more the idea of of a verbal or just a uh, written expression of goodness. Uh, Find ways to speak words of kindness, grace, and encouragement. Uh, Write them a card for their birthday or other noteworthy events. Uh, Show them that you are interested in their good, that, that you value them as a person, that you care about them in the totality of their life. You know, if If they have something that uh, happens that's a blessing in their life, encourage them with that. Rejoice with those who rejoice. In fact, um, if you have a Bible, you can go to Romans 12. And in that passage, though we typically use the the phrase rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep in the context of just life in the church in a general way, the reality is, uh, this is uh, Romans 12.15, Uh, It's in the context, both before and after, uh, it's surrounded by the context of how do you respond to people who are sinning against you, who are persecuting you, people who are your enemies. I mean, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, and then you get verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Uh, And then verses 16 and 17, uh, all the way down to the end of the chapter, talking about how do you, again, deal with those who are uh, actively against you. And so, uh, be mindful about what is going on in their life. How can you rejoice with them? You know, big things, small things. Uh, how can you weep with them? You know, is there some loss that they experience? And you write them a note. You know that you're praying for them. That you're grieving with them. How can you bless them? So you want to do works, uh, actions of goodness. You want to. Speak words or write words of blessing uh, and be purposeful in those things. And then third, pray. Ask the Lord to work in their heart to restore them to himself and to you and to glorify himself in their life. Don't just pray. God, help them to see how wrong they are. (laughs) Right? Help them to see how much they've hurt me. Um, Remember how we talked about that uh, when um, when God forgives us, he doesn't listen to the prayers of others when they pray against us because of our sin. Well, if the person you're in conflict with is a believer, uh, in a sense, that's true of them as well. And so uh, you want to pray uh, for God to, to work in their life, to grow uh, Christ in their life, to glorify himself in their life. Um, and, and you want to seek their good before God. Uh, if they're promoting evil and seeking to harm you so this is they're actively sinning against you it is right to ask the lord to prevent them from accomplishing their plans and to remove their strength and to distort their counsel uh there's a variety of passages uh there when david was uh, when he had to flee jerusalem because uh, his son absalom was um committing a coup um and trying to take over the kingdom. Uh, One of David's faithful counselors uh, stayed uh, to try and subvert uh, uh, Absalom. And Absalom already had his own counselor, Ahithophel. And uh, Ahithophel gave Absalom good counsel, which was, Hey, Absalom, don't wait. Go after David. Uh, Get him while he's weak. Get him while he's tired. Because you know that if he gathers any strength, uh, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to have a much more difficult time to defeat him. Um, I'm forgetting the name of David's um, counselor that was with Absalom. But uh, he gave bad counsel, which was no, no, no. And he gave reasons for why he should wait and, and delay going after David. Well, one of the things, you know, the counsel was passed on to David through a courier. And David prayed, Lord, I can't remember the exact word, like cancel or unravel or whatever the word is, um, undo the the good counsel of Ahithophel. (laughs) Lord, don't let Absalom listen to good counsel. I think that's a legitimate thing to pray because Absalom, even though the counsel was good from the perspective of war, (laughs) uh, it was bad in the sense of he was seeking to do harm to David. And so David was saying, "Lord, don't let him do follow that counsel. That would otherwise make him victorious." Uh, David prayed in a Psalm three, which is a Psalm that he wrote. I, I believe that that night at when he left Jerusalem, uh, David prayed, "Lord, uh, you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Uh, you have broken their arm." And he's essentially in, in saying that he's praying for God to prevent. Absalom from being powerful and effective in his schemes. So if someone is committing evil against you, let's say it's a coworker, and they just have it out for you and they want your job or they want that promotion that you want or they just don't like you and they're just always trying to make life difficult for you, it is legitimate to say, Lord, stop them. (laughs) Prevent them from being effective. Lord, help others see their character and not, you know, help my boss see their character and not trust them you know, whatever it might be, stop them from committing more evil. I think that's legitimate. Uh, But the best way that God stops evil people from doing evil is by saving them, right? By redeeming them, giving them a new heart, transforming their desires so that not only are they unsuccessful in their evil, but now they're desiring good. So we can pray for that. We can pray for their salvation if they're not saved, or if they are saved, that God would sanctify them and give them a, a heart for Christ. So we want to be thoughtful. You know, Again, the point says frame and follow a practical, Christ-centered, ongoing plan to minister to the other person. That takes intentionality, doesn't it? To sit down and think about how can I bless the other person? How, how can I go out of my way uh, to minister to them? What can I do that would be an encouragement to them? Um, and when we do that we're modeling what God has done for us All Right? scripture says that even before time began the father and the son agreed on a plan to redeem mankind we don't know the precise order of events in their mind uh, God is outside of time and so there's complexities there that are beyond our understanding but He had a plan. He developed a plan for his enemies whom he would create as good and then who would rebel against him. He cultivated a plan, developed a plan, and then enacted that plan for how he would save us. In this case, in the case of salvation, it is a multi-thousand year plan, right? Uh, It is God working slowly through purposes to uh, ultimately... Unveil his plan of redemption. You know, at some point to bring the Messiah, and then ultimately to glorify his saints. God was purposeful in that, and He enacted that plan over time. So we, when we think this way toward others who are hostile against us, we're acting like our heavenly Father, and that's that's what He wants us to do. Okay. Then the fifth one, and uh, we're definitely going to end early. So if you uh, if you have any questions, get get those ready. But, but the fifth principle for glorifying God when the other person doesn't respond is keep a God-centered, balanced perspective on their life. Now, this is very similar to the first point, uh, but uh, there's some other nuances here. Uh, remember that your life is not defined by this conflict. Your identity, your dignity, and your significance and your hope are all bound up in Christ. Not in this conflict. Again, we talked about that under the first point. Colossians three four uh, says, "When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory." So Christ is your life, right? We've been talking about that in Philippians. Uh, to live is Christ. Uh, uh, I'll mention in the sermon today, Galatians two twenty. Uh, you know, uh, I have been crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? So Christ is our life. Now here's, here's something to think about. When someone sins against you, you know, we, uh, we understand that there is a relational sin debt that exists. You know, scripture talks about sin in terms of, of debt. Uh, Our sin against God is a debt against Him which Christ paid on the cross, right? And so, in the same way, when someone sins against us, there is a a sin debt. There's a relational debt that is owed which is uh, resolved when they ask for forgiveness and we grant them forgiveness. Uh, Relationally, that's how it's resolved. When Christ saved us, when He purchased us, One of the things that is true, which we focus on the most, and and rightly so, is that he purchased our accounts payable. Anybody know what accounts payable is? Anybody want to explain it? I'm not an accountant. I think I can explain it, but just very simply. What is it? Anybody? It's debt. I mean, it's it's a. Fancy, it's not too fancy. It's just a way of speaking of debt. Accounts payable, Rebecca? Wouldn't it be like when the hospital sends you a bill and then God takes that bill and pays it for you? Yes, yeah. So it's an expense that you owe. Uh, And that's usually what it is in a business, that it's the business expenses that, you know, often, uh, unlike consumers, where we have to pay it right then and sometimes we do that with a credit card, but we have to, you know, the the merchant wants the money (laughs) right away. With businesses, they often do business on the basis of, um, now this term I'm not sure what it is, but where there's a delayed payment and so there will be like a net 30 or a net 60 or a net 90 uh, where you have 30 days to pay this bill. You have 90 days to pay this bill. I took accounting in college 20 years ago. but Anyway, uh, so so when you have a bunch of those bills, uh, that's your accounts payable. These are the things that you have to pay All right, I'll use another analogy. That's your tap. (laughs) I won't say anything more than that. (laughs) Uh, So uh, when Christ purchased us at the cross, he paid our debt. He emptied out the bin or the folder or whatever of our accounts payable. He also, this is where we have to think a little bit he also paid or sorry uh, when he purchased us he also purchased our accounts receivable so if accounts payable is this the the debt that we owe to others what's accounts receivable what people owe to us right we maybe we've lent out money or we we've sold a product and we're waiting to receive that money well, when someone commits a, a sin against us, and they have a sin debt that now they owe to us, because of Christ's work on the cross, because he's purchased us, he's the new owner of our business. That debt is no longer ours. That debt now belongs to him. That accounts for receivable debt. And so, even though there's still, there's still a relational component you know, that needs to be resolved, The reality is, uh, the debt itself is Christ's to deal with, not ours. And so, as much as we want, hopefully, to resolve the relational uh, dynamic that's broken, uh, we have to remember that this, because this is Christ's debt that is owed to him, he is the one who has the right and the authority and the responsibility to do whatever he wants to do with that debt. If Jesus wants to, he can call that debt, meaning he can demand that that person pay that debt back. If he chooses, he can send that person to debtor's prison. Hell. Or he can choose to forgive that person's debt and not have them pay it in any way. That's his choice because he's the one who owns that debt because he has purchased us. So what belonged to us no longer belongs to us, now it belongs to him. And so because of that, we are now freed where it's not our responsibility anymore to deal with that debt. So when someone sins against us, putting this all together, when someone sins against us, as much as we ought to pursue you know, resolving the relational uh, brokenness and being reconciled, uh, we have to remember that the debt that they owe is actually owed to Christ and not us. Now that helps relieve some of the angst of man. They have hurt me so bad. They need to pay for their sin. I don't. I don't mean that in an angry way. I mean that in a sorrowful grieving i'm so pained by their sin kind of way that's an understandable and a real feeling but how we can help work through that emotion is christ is going to deal with that debt and because he's perfectly just he's going to deal with it perfectly justly okay that all stems out of christ is our life our life belongs to christ and so when there's no resolution, when the person doesn't respond to our peacemaking efforts, we can say, Christ, this is yours to deal with. <laughs> this is your problem, not mine. Right? Sometimes you get into a situation and you just want to say, uh, not my problem. <laughs> I don't want to deal with that. You, know? you walk into a room where you know, kids are fighting or coworkers are arguing or whatever. You're like, I'm stepping out of here. <laughs> we can do that in a sense. If we've made the efforts that Christ has called us to make and they're not responding, we can say, Christ, this is not my problem anymore. So I'm not going to get uh, depressed. I'm not going to allow this to tear me down, to define me. This is, this is yours, all right? Okay, remember then the next point. Remember that in the sin-cursed world, God's people will be sinned against and God's people will sin. The presence and consequences of sin proves that God's word is true and must be followed. So don't allow the sinful choices of others to diminish your view of God, his word, and the church. I don't know if you've known of others who've thought this. I don't know if you've thought this. But I have seen and known friends, people that I, I know, who are sinned against by believers. And as a result, their response is, well, if that's what church people are like, <laughs> I don't want to be part of the church. What's what's the point? Well, whatever their sin was, it just validates the truth of Scripture, that we're sinners, <laughs> that we're sinners in need of grace and forgiveness. And so uh, we shouldn't say, well, forget this you know, Christianity thing. You know, these Christians are just like everybody else. Yeah, yes, we are. You know, The hope is, though, that Uh, With God's help, we can work together to overcome. We can acknowledge our sin, call it what it is, and work through it and overcome it to the glory of God. So so don't allow the sin that is committed by another believer, by a leader, by a pastor, to say, well, forget church. You know, This church is full of sinners. I'm not going there anymore. (laughs) And again, I, I say that glibly, but I understand that sometimes the sin can be so significant it can be such a betrayal of trust that that's where those responses come from so again those are real emotional responses but we have to remember i don't know yes this is a sin that that was a sin this person did but this only proves the truthfulness of scripture and this only proves how much we need christ and how much i need christ Galatians 6 7 and 9 says do not be deceived God is not mocked for whatever a man sows this he will also reap for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life let us not lose heart in doing good for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary there's a variety of ways we can think about this in the context of of what I was just saying but uh, if, for example, uh, we respond in a way that's running away from the conflict, saying, well, I don't want anything to do with the church or with God or whatever, we're sowing to the flesh. We're having a fleshly response to the situation. And we will reap the consequences of that in our own life. You know, It could be that we will have proved that we were not a believer to begin with if we ultimately and finally reject Christ. It could be that we cultivate a pattern in our life of not dealing with conflict biblically and so we you know, just perpetuate that and, and continue that in our life and that reaps all kinds of consequences uh, and so we really want to think carefully to I want what I want to reap or sorry, what I want to sow is godliness righteousness, Christ-likeness I want to sow the seeds that will help me grow in Christ in this situation, as difficult as it may be as hard as the ground is to overturn and, and plant in he says, do not lose heart in doing good. If you honor the Lord, if you pursue Christ in, in following these principles in his word, you will reap a reward if you do not grow weary. So keep keep pursuing Christ. The third point there is remember that Christ came the first time to rescue us from the penalty and power of sin and at his second coming, he will rescue us from the presence of sin. The suffering we experience at the hands of others is painful but temporary, but we must keep our hope on eternity where sin does not exist. I'll talk about a little bit of that in the sermon uh, today from Philippians. Revelation 21, verse 4 And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any sin or death. Excuse me, there no will long, no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So as we are struggling with this broken relationship, with the pain of of what has been done to us, we can set our minds on eternity and say, one day this will be over. We can encourage our hearts and strengthen our our, uh, minds with the remembrance of uh, what eternity will be like. That one day sin will be gone and this isn't going to last forever. Next, there it says, "Remember that uh, there is no true, full, satisfying justice in this world. God will completely and ultimately accomplish justice at the end of time, and will receive, uh, and all will receive what is due." Right? Um, if you've had any engagement with the justice system, uh, you know it's unjust. I mean, it's it's unjust because it's developed and conducted by sinners and so even if someone humanly speaking gets away with their sin if it's a crime you know they they steal money they steal a possession um you know you're taken advantage of you know whatever it is and there's criminality there and everything in you wants to say they need to get caught they need to get convicted and it doesn't happen You can say in your heart, even if they did get the fullest consequences that mankind can bring, that is not full justice, right? That's not satisfying justice. The only satisfying justice is the justice that God will bring on the final day. Revelation 21, 6 and 7 says, "...he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my people." He will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We've said it before some get justice, this kind of justice, some get grace, no one gets injustice. So set your mind on that, that uh, the lack of justice in this world should not discourage you. It should remind you that only God's justice uh, will satisfy and it will come to pass. And if you really take the time to think about it, the fact that all of those kinds of people and anyone who is apart from Christ will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone forever and ever. If you really think about that, I think that should cultivate compassion in you because of the horror of that justice. We should want more than anything for those who've sinned against us, even those who've done egregious sins, we should want them to not be in hell forever and ever, but rather be forgiven just like we are, if we're <coughs> Christ. So we can be comforted, certainly, by the reality of God's justice, but it should also uh, increase our c- compassion and mercy for that person if they are uh, living in unrepentant sin and, and in danger of eternal hell. So there are the five principles of how to glorify God uh, when the other person doesn't respond. Uh, I just want to point out that in the, I don't know if it got included, did the last page of resources get included? So on the last page there, there's recommended resources. Uh, There's a number of really helpful books. I just want to commend to you. Uh, the. uh, Let me just make a comment about them. Uh, Help, I'm in a Conflict, that's a small booklet. Uh, that can just be an introductory uh, resource. I I use that sometimes uh, just to get things started in a mediation or or reconciliation process. Uh, The book Pursuing Peace by Robert Jones is really the book that I use to outline this larger, this class because of the the structure of the book fit really well with the uh, Growing Disciples quarterly system. Uh, So that's a helpful book. Um, But that book depends very heavily on The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. And uh, the the four promises of forgiveness, the four G's, the seven A's of confession, uh, and a number of other principles all come from Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. Super, super helpful book. Uh, It's helpful not only because of the principles, but he gives a lot of um, analogies of stories that really help you see the principles, how the principles work out. So I highly recommend that book. Uh, there's peacemaking for families which is just applying all of those principles in the family context so uh, and I think there's a variety of other like peacemaking for women and peacemaking for babies and you know, things like that <laughs> <laughs> um, but those are all helpful peacemaking for dummies yeah peacemaking for dummies I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> all <the other> <laughs> Uh, that's funny. Uh, and then there's three really good books on forgiveness here. Uh, Unpacking Forgiveness by Chris Bronze. Really helpful. Uh, really works through a, a variety of biblical principles. And again, gives really powerful accounts of forgiveness that uh, I have found very compelling. Um, but just solid book there on, on forgiveness. The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness by John MacArthur. Now, if you're familiar at all with his uh, preaching, I think His books are based on his preaching, and that's just solidly biblical and and very helpful. Uh, And then from a a more of a feminine perspective, but great for men as well, is Choosing Forgiveness by Nancy Leigh DeMoss. Uh, Again, super, super helpful. Uh, So I would commend any and all of those uh, to you. Uh, And then some websites, Peacemaker Ministries, Relational Wisdom, uh, there's uh, On those two websites, there's a lot of very focused help on conflicts, working through conflicts. Uh, if, if this were even a topic that you're like, man, I want to learn how I can even train others uh, uh, in this. I mean, there is such a thing as a certified Christian conciliator that honestly... Uh, there's a lot more to it than what we've talked about in this class, but what we've talked about this in this class is a huge, huge part of being a certified Christian conciliator. Uh, it's really, um, how do you help people apply these principles that we've talked about in their lives to reconcile them? Uh, but there's a lot of good stuff there. And then on the, the biblical instruction on conflict, that link there, uh, IBCD is the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship based in California. Uh, they have a website with tons of resources and that particular link, if you were to type it all out, uh, are seminars, audio sessions on uh, addressing co- matters of conflict. And then at the end there there's two uh, series uh, of messages. Uh, there's a message called or a series called Biblical Reconciliation uh, that is from Grace Community Church in California in John MacArthur's Church. I, I believe it's four messages. It's four, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's four messages. I should know this because I taught two of them. <laughs> I think it's four. <laughs> it's either four and I taught two, or it's two and I taught one, one, one or the other. Um, but though that's from a number of years ago. Um, and then a series on forgiveness there is from a church in Kentucky. Uh, and this is a, a four-part training that Milton Vincent, who was a pastor in California, but that he did at this church Uh, called Evangelizing Those Who Wrong You. And the idea of that term is, if you want to rephrase it, gospelizing those who wrong you, meaning manifesting the gospel, living out the gospel toward those who wrong you. And uh, that is an incredibly helpful series on the topic of forgiveness. Because one of the things that he does, which most of the other books don't do at least to the same degree, if even at all, is he spends a significant chunk of time acknowledging the fact that when we are in conflict, when we've been sinned against, especially in egregious ways, it is really hard to forgive. And so he spends a lengthy period of time uh, unpacking how do you get to the place of forgiveness. Uh, This that sermon series became the kind of the core of the class that I teach called the Gospel for Life, um, and so that, it's it's material that we've taught here in other contexts. But uh, but hearing Milton Vincent, I mean, he's he's just a, a great uh, pastor speaker, and uh, I, I definitely commend that to you. Okay, so that's just for your continued growth uh, and uh, help there. We have a little over ten minutes. If uh, if there's any questions that you want to ask either about things that I've said today or things that I've that we've worked through the rest of the class, uh, this is your last opportunity. After today, you can ask no more questions on this topic. So it's now or tomorrow. Yeah, Rebecca. So um, I have a question about the secretary song. Yeah. So. I had a conversation with someone about them, and I also listen, happened to listen to this podcast thing where they were asking, someone was asking the speaker about it, and um, he gave a nuanced response, and I just, I'm still kind of confused a little bit about, like, when are imprecatory psalm like, what, well, yeah, when are they appropriate, and when, and how do they... Mm-hmm. How, they're Old Testament, obviously, so, like... And and then I was—I think I heard someone say, well, that was because he's king, so it's a little bit different position than okay. us. I don't, yeah, okay. I don't know. If, I just was wondering if you had any thoughts about, like, how that even fit into modern day. I do. <laughs> 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 yeah, so... Um, Context. I think to start with where you ended. I think context is helpful to recognize that David and the other authors who wrote them, uh, they were not writing these things about you know their spouse who was angry at them, <laughs> <laughs> or you know a good friend who sinned against them. They, they were writing these things about uh, people and nations who were out to kill them, mortal enemies. And so uh, that context is is pretty significant. Um, as, as what was giving rise to these, and let, actually let me back up and say, because maybe not everyone knows what an imprecatory prayer or psalm is. Imprecatory prayers or psalms are the psalms, as I was saying earlier, where uh, the psalmist cries out for God's justice to come down on evildoers, but is, it's stated in such a way that it's almost uh, shocking. Uh, like, how could someone say this about, or, or ask God to do this to someone else? Um, I mentioned Psalm 3. Let me just go there, because that's the only one that's going to mind at the moment. Uh, there's all They're all over the Psalms, but in Psalm 3, um, where is it, where is it, where is it? In verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked um, I won't take the time to, to find more but you can find them all. excuse me all over the psalms and it's where the psalmist is asking God to to, to do things uh, to the wicked as an act of judgment I mean there's one probably the most shocking where the psalmist says something like blessed is the one that's uh, just against the rock Yes. So I got that right? I was thinking I was starting that wrong. It, it's along the lines of blessing. Blessed is the one who shatters your children on the rocks. That's a pretty serious statement. Uh, but all kinds of things like that. Um, so how do we think about that? Well, context. Uh, number two, uh, the genre is a genre of poetic language and so what sounds you know pretty extreme physical violence might be more figurative language like here in psalm 3 when he says you have smitten your enemies on the cheek i'm uh, my best understanding of that is not god slap them on the cheek but rather god bring them to shame right we understand someone being slapped on the cheek as a as an act of shamefulness And then when he says, You have shattered the teeth of the wicked, I understand that to more literally mean God removed their power, like defanging an animal so that they can't harm others. Like that, (laughs) when I was preaching Psalm 3, I think I said the joke in in the sermon um, What do you call a bear without fangs? Gummy bears. <laughs> I promised myself I'd never do that again in a sermon, but this is not a sermon. So. <laughs> there's a dad joke for you, right? Um, pastor dad joke. Um, anyway, uh, but that, I think that's what he's saying is God remove their ability to bring harm, right? So that very vivid, picturesque language is really meant to convey. Uh, a reality which is more of a universal thing like we talked about earlier. So so that's another thing. The genre is critical. Um, so then how do we bring that to today? I, I think, honestly, it, it's really what I said earlier. God prevent them from being successful in their evil schemes. Uh, God um, bring justice to them. Uh, and then God save them. Uh, I think those are three... Uh, things that we can pray um, and be faith, both faithful to the what the psalmists were getting at as well as do it in a way that is reflective of Christ and what he would desire. Uh, he would desire evil to stop, he would desire justice to be, d- to be done, and he would desire uh, wicked people to be saved. Alright, Gloria. I want to look that question. It's interesting because I was thinking about this specific song 139 where yeah. David says um, do I not hate those who hate you oh Lord and do I not love those who mm. are against you mm. I hate them with complete hatred and, I and I've always kind of looked at that and I'm like oh, I'm going to skip over that um, and I didn't really understand it yeah. as far as like the hatred um, yeah, can you elaborate on that <laughs> <laughs> well in it so adding to what i said earlier i I, um well it's actually interesting uh one of the statements that i'll make in the sermon uh today is that when we get to heaven we will hate the things that god hates Mm -hmm. perfectly Uh, because god does hate things right there's passage where he says these are the abominations of the Lord things that God abominates uh, he said of the um, generation of Israel that wandered the wilderness I loathed that generation so God hates things and if we're thinking the way that God thinks then that would seem to mean that we should hate things too um, and I've I think that that is where we can understand the principle of righteous indignation. That anger is not a sin in and of itself. Anger is uh, a God-given ability that we have. It's a God-given emotion when it's experienced rightly. Uh, That is a negative uh, moral judgment uh, of a perceived injustice or wrong. And so, when we look at evil and wickedness, you know, we look at what takes place in North Korea. We look at the you know, atrocities all around the world. You know, we look at think about the cartels in Latin America. We think about you know the wickedness of the drug trade in the United States. We think about abortion. You know, there's so many things that we can think about and say, God, I hate this. I hate that people made in your image are being destroyed in these ways. And I hate those who are destroying people in these ways. So I think that's a that can be an emotion that we experience in a righteous way. Um, and God will experience that forever and ever, and does and will, because there will forever and ever be people in hell. And I think when we get to heaven uh, I think all of us will have loved ones, family members, friends, who will be in hell. You know, I, Scripture doesn't say, you know, what we'll be thinking about, uh, you know, will we, I'm, I'm, will we remember them. Scripture doesn't necessarily say that, but at least uh, hypothetically, if we do remember them, if we do know and are consciously aware that they're in hell, our mind will be so perfectly aligned with Christ that we will affirm the right justice of god in maintaining hell forever and ever Uh, but again i think right alongside that the reality of wickedness and evil and the reality of eternal hell should say as much as i hate this person god i want to love them the way that you love them and God's love is not an emotional butterfly's love, right? It's a am committed to doing good, to praying, to blessing, as much as I hate this person. And so, Lord, change my emotions so that I can love them, um, and and perhaps they might be saved. I mean, yeah. So, just last thought here: uh, Matthew twenty three is are the seven woes that Jesus pronounced against the Pharisees. And I don't think he used the word hate in there, but a woe is an expression of condemnation, judgment, and um, and yet at the cross, to those very people or about those very people that were putting him to death and that he had pronounced those woes on, Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he didn't just pray that once. The Scripture says he kept praying. And so he said it over and over and over again. And in my mind's eye, you know, this is not scripture, but in my mind's eye, I imagine that he was hanging on that cross and he was looking at the soldiers right in front of him and praying that. And then he'd look over at the Pharisees and he was praying that. And he was looking at the crowds and he was praying that. Uh, because his heart, as much as he has a heart of justice, he has a heart of Compassion. And that's the heart we should be striving for. Okay, let me pray.